Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hello, hello. Welcome to OMD Daily. Today's May 18th. What a wonderful day. Uh, it was a big day for me, uh, and maybe it's a big day for you as well because you are listening to this podcast, and today the big day was because the podcast launched. Wow, that was a really long way of saying a very simple thing. I will work on getting better at it. I've constantly gotten a lot of feedback that I'm a little too wordy with everything. My writing, the way I give explanations, I'm, I am trying to become a much clearer thinker and as a result, a clear communicator. So bear with me as I consciously try to improve on that. But yes, so today was a big day. Um, once again... It never really goes according to plan, <laughs> even with launches that you kind of prepare a week in advance. I, The error I did not foresee today was that Apple Podcasts has their own schedule of refreshing RSS feeds. So before I get into the technicalities of you know, what do you do when you launch a podcast, well, there's all the upfront stuff, right? I think I might have spoken about this in the past or I know I've definitely mentioned it in my weekly newsletter. In fact, if you haven't subscribed, you should actually subscribe at omdventures.com. When you go there, you'll see a pop-up and every page at the bottom has a weekly newsletter where I share all the writings and the podcast episodes and the kind of weekly recap, if you will, that doesn't really make it into OMD Daily. But yeah, so without digressing too much. Yeah, so there's the typical thing with launching a podcast you need, you don't need, but I chose to have the intro music and so finding the right music, editing all that and, you know, getting the intro, I guess, you know, the stuff you heard in the beginning with the music and the introduction of what this podcast is, all that written out, recorded, what sounds right, what doesn't, how long is it, all that, and then the album art and then you have to kind of submit your podcast through to, for approval for all the major distribution engines like Spotify, Apple, etc. Apple's always given me the most problems. I remember when I first launched Accounted For, I think the entire Apple podcast uh, platform for podcasters, not the listeners. So the listening activity wasn't impacted, but for people who are creating podcasts, it just so happened that the week I decided to prepare for the launch the entire platform was down for about a month or so. And so that delayed everything. And it was a month, but you never knew it was coming back up. Apple was extremely poor in communicating any of that. Like people were just, you know, losing their shit on the Apple forum. And once again, I kind of had everything lined up. I edited all the episodes uh, last night, had it all ready and positioned, um, I was going to make all the social media announcements today, tell my friends, etc., put it in my newsletters, and I'm about to submit it, and I check my iTunes, and I go, hmm, why, why are there 
no episodes because I scheduled all eight and my podcasting platform says it's all ready to go, but why is it not available? And turns out that Apple, the way they collect your podcast episode from your from the host provider you use, so I use Transistor, some people use Podbean, some people use Lipsyn, um, some people use Squarespace, etc. Or you know, Anchor is another example. But for some reason, Apple has their own kind of refresh cycle. So if you don't get in in that window, you have to wait. But I don't know what the refresh cycle is, so I was kind of waiting and waiting and waiting. And after about close to an hour, it just didn't seem like my episodes were going in. So. Went through some Q&A forums, found out I could manually troubleshoot, manually refresh, like a forced refresh of my RSS feed, which is how all these distributors get access to my podcast. And yeah, so that was kind of the whole morning escapades on, oh, well, this didn't work out. Well, let's figure out a solution and pump that out. So yeah, that's, that's kind of been part of the big day. And... Yeah, so that's been exciting. Um, Then other than that, the day was kind of same old. Began with, you know, the the 100 push-ups a day, did the reading one hour. Um, The the book this week is Why We Sleep by Matt Walker, and that honestly has been an amazing book so far. It's kind of one of those books where I'm actually really looking forward to reading it, and so I'm looking forward to my hourly reading session during the I'd say the late mornings. It's actually gotten. It's, I knew I. I think I've always had this gut feeling that I was, not a morning, lark, even though I really wanted to be. You know, because all the CEOs say they're morning risers, and I used to do this whole thing where I used to wake up at four thirty in the morning every day. Like when I was in consulting, that's what I used to do, and I was able to sustain it. You know, just pure, pure willpower. Um. And I'm not saying my performance was that much better. Uh, I don't think my gym training was that much better. I think I really kind of forced things instead of letting it letting things be natural. It's kind of it kind of I think defines my entire life in some way. <laughs> Just constantly trying to find a hill to climb up instead of ever going downhill. It's probably because I'm afraid of like things that go too fast. But um, yeah, that's. God, I lost what I was talking about. Oh, yes, Matt Walker. So, yeah, so from reading the book, just going through the first like, four chapters, it definitely got me thinking a little differently about how I might be wired. And I learned that about 60% of the population is actually wired to be more on the night owl side. Like 30% are actual night owls, night owls and um, th- the other 30% are kind of in the middle with like a slight evening bias, and 40% are legit morning larks where they have you know they they're good waking up at six in the morning or five in the morning they actually get really tired at 9 p.m and i never really was someone like that i had to go through a lot of nighttime meditation um a lot of kind of forcing myself to go to sleep early every time i wanted to wake up early and even when i woke up early i just kind of felt awful although i just kind and you know i just said you know what early risers just plow through things so I think this book's definitely got me thinking more about, okay, what if I embraced this part of me where I tend to get pretty tired around midnight and I think I naturally wake up around 9, 9.30. So, you know, who cares what society thinks and who cares what these CEOs do? 
what if this works better for me? So that's something I've been exploring. And so far, it's only been about a day, two days, no, a day of consciously doing it. But it's been something that's been kind of more recurring naturally. Um, I think this COVID quarantine has helped a lot as well. And just kind of let me just sleep sleep in and stuff because I don't really have to go to my co-working space a little you know, early to get my favorite spot because I do a hot desk membership. And I don't like losing my favorite spots by the window. So I've always had to kind of go in earlier. But yeah, so this has been an awesome learning experience so far. So I'm, I'm super excited to wake up tomorrow morning and get right down into the book as well. But yeah, so kind of the, the whole morning frantic stuff kind of got me behind schedule on my report reading today. And I was really hoping to finish up my research report on Morningstar. So... Last Friday, I don't think I talked about it on the uh, podcast yet. So last Friday, I was actually part of, I attended the annual meeting for Morningstar, and that was a full webinar. I actually got a couple of my questions answered by the management team, so that was awesome. And I think that's what made me realize is how awesome this whole, all the annual meetings are webinar format being, because I can just kind of submit questions and you know, I'm not going to get singled out because I don't wear a suit and the fact that I don't work for some billion dollar hedge fund. So that's pretty awesome. And I think the next few annual meetings I attend, I'll definitely have a whole list of questions prepared in advance, just like I would if I were to work at a fund. So that's been pretty exciting. Learned a little more about the business itself. Um, a lot of this morning or I guess early afternoon was focused not on reading any annual reports, but I want to learn more about the founder, Joe Mansueto. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I'm not too sure. And a bit about uh, Kunal Kapoor, who's the current CEO of Morningstar. Joe was the previous CEO and the founder, but he's now just the executive chairman. He kind of gave up his CEO spot, I think, in 2016 to Kunal, who'd been with the company since he graduated. So he's been with the company for like 23 years, I think. But... Um, I'm not going to go too deep into it because I want to write a full write-up and I'm, one, I'm hopefully going to talk about it in tomorrow's episode. But just super high-level, really interesting things about Joe was just how, you know, he's just been like an entrepreneur through and through, it seems. Like he, was it, like when he was in university, he negotiated with like a pop distribution company to get whole, you know, ton of pop into his board his uh what do you call those dormitories yeah his dorm room yeah in college and so him and his buddy would sell pop and chips out of out of his dorm room and they would pro- make like 500 dollars in profit per month and th- this is like way back in you know in retirement the 1980s or something like that and or maybe 1970s i forget when he graduated but no, he was doing that, and then he went to get his MBA at Chicago, and he set up a whole comp- he set up a company selling Christmas trees, <laughs> and then after graduating, he wanted to start a chain of fast food companies, and so what he did is he actually worked as a night manager at Arby's, the roast beef company, for um, some two weeks or something just to understand how it actually worked, and and also because he was curious. So it's just kind of this, like Joe. He Joe Mansueto, he's a billionaire now, and but even back when he was an MBA grad, just to see this, you know, someone who, when you're an MBA grad from 
a prestigious school, not a lot of people want to go and do like the quote unquote dirty grunt work. And a lot of his past kind of portrays that. And I think that's the kind of demeanor he gives off where he is just very down to earth, what people call the Midwestern style billionaire because he's, you know, I guess he's raised in Indiana and that kind of helps with the ethos as well. But yeah, he's just this really down to earth guy. Like he apparently after IPOing Morningstar in like the early years after the IPO in 2005, um, I think, what was it? He became a billionaire at like 1.2 billion in uh, net worth, and he was still driving his seven-year-old BMW. And I think apparently like the the cost basis of the car was some twenty-one thousand dollars. And so he has this kind of whole kind of frugality and just very discreet personality. It seems he's not very out there. He doesn't shine all this stuff around. And what he also talked about is that the idea of Morningstar and kind of the inspiration came from Buffett. Like he learned about Buffett while he was in school and he never really thought about him going into the investing business until he read about Buffett and John Train's book called Money Masters, which is kind of an old time classic. And it just kind of hit him as an epiphany that what Buffett was talking about just made sense. And it kind of pushed him to continuously kind of, I guess, play around with the idea of Morningstar creating this whole financial information company. And like he had a whole career where he worked in venture capital for a couple of years, went to be a stock investor and then like a stock analyst. And then he's launched Morningstar and Joe got, still considers publishing t- to be an amazing business. And that kind of gave him the confidence earlier on to kind of go full frontal into starting Morningstar. And also side note, apparently the name Morningstar was inspired by, um, what's that? I forget his name. Uh, Thoreau's book, Walden, which is pretty cool. I didn't expect that. Um, and I might actually talk about the meaning behind that in the report, so I won't go too deep into it. But I thought that was pretty cool. And I also didn't know that Joe's current side company called Mansueto Ventures also owns Inc. Magazine and Fast Company. Once again, he's kind of, I think, leveraging his traditional kind of, uh, I guess, value investor style mindset where he bought these magazine companies at a discount to what their original purchase price was from the parent company when the parent company bought it off of this other kind of real estate billionaire who started the original magazine companies when the whole kind of ad market was extremely frothy. And so Joe bought it at a, at a huge discount where, you know, a lot of these magazine companies were failing and not doing well um, due to, you know, the rise of the internet and, and digital advertising. And they just weren't able to keep up, you know, newspaper was dying. This is all kind of happening, I think, in the mid 2000s. And th- I thought that was pretty fascinating, too, where he's just con- it seems like he's continuously a really passionate guy about the media world and especially the publishing world as well. And so just learning more about his whole journey was very fascinating and i think he's definitely been extremely thoughtful in the culture he created at morningstar like he's i think when i read uh, multiples of his interview he continuously emphasizes the value of being independent being transparent in thought and just a lot about building trust with his employees and you know i think he he tries his best to kind of i think live through that like like we're talking about a company in like the 1990, like 1999, for example, like in the 1990s, that had a no vacation, you know, limit policy. 
like we talk about silicon valley companies doing all that stuff now and go oh wow you're so forward thinking but you're talking about this financial information company in the 90s that had no vacation policy no dress code policy in a world in finance and joe talks about how it's because he wanted to build a place where people would just be innovative and people could continuously be challenged and creative and do things that they loved and he was inspired by buffett to create that kind of workplace that continuously ignored the crowd and he was constantly searching for ways to continuously be contrarian in how he ran his company and i think that spoke a lot of volumes to me about the ethos behind uh morningstar as a company so that was very fascinating it kind of added much more data points to the things that i value in a company so that was kind of a good chunk of the day kind of fault trying to see the track record of management how kind of joe's been evolving through multiple i think segments of years of interviews i was reading um kind of like you know the we got the 90s got the 2000s the mid 2000s and kind of seeing the progression there <clears throat> and other than that um the rest of the day was actually kind of a continuation of what happened last week when i discovered that munish pubra had this super amazing Q&A with Francis uh, Chu. They say Chu, I thought it was Chow, but anyhow, Francis Chu um at the Harvard kind of Q&A seminar video. That was like a whole two and a half hour lecture, but it was awesome worth every minute of it. And so I kind of went on this whole rampage today and watched three separate university lectures that Monish Pobrai did. That's some probably a cumulative of close to 4 hours, but I watched a couple of them twice <laughs> so i definitely spend a good chunk of my day just having monish pubrai in my mind and i also i honestly think it's because i really l- kind of gravitate towards him as an investor his style i really loved his book the tando investor when i first read it and he's been someone i've been cloning um when i first started out in the investing world as well And so I figured I'll kind of go through kind of key things I learned in the three major lectures. So the first lecture is one he gives at Boston College. Oh, and by the way, yeah, all the all the notes I've written down, the links to the interviews are all going to be on the episode note at my OMD Ventures site. So just go find the episode 9 and when you click into it, all the notes will be there. Just so it's easy for you. I'm just not going to go through all of it. I'll just kind of go through the things I found to be most fascinating. Um so yeah the first lecture was at Boston College in November 7th 2019 I think that was the release date I'm not too sure but um and I didn't go through in uh, order so keep that in mind of like so the three lectures I watched I'm saying I didn't go through them in uh like calendar order I just kind of picked whichever one I thought would be interesting So the Boston College one I think the key learnings I took out were um I'd say a lot was actually on the culture side I think so he Munish references Motherson and Sumi which is a auto parts manufacturing company and I that this was purely a business learning that I found fascinating it's a company I think that's based out in India and he was talked about how it has a very unusual culture where there so with they're kind of a roll up model of auto parts and I I think when he spoke about the my media that was okay kind of like a void void group kind of thing where you're just you know buying out small dealers and kind of making it your own and the way that Mother Sensumi was unconventional was that most acquirers so these 
serial roll-up companies are kind of like a private equity fund, right? Like they sometimes will leverage cash, you know, get raised debt, or if they're really good, they'll use the free cash flow they have, but they'll constantly be actively going out trying to find targets to acquire. But apparently what Motherson and Sumi does is they don't do neither of that. They don't like to buy companies when the the company wants to get acquired. They don't like to go out and uh, find companies to acquire. What they do is they actually leverage the OEMs of auto parts, like uh, I guess like BMW, to give them kind of hints, saying like, so if BMW, apparently like BMW will come to Motherson and say, hey, you know, like company X is kind of failing and we kind of want them to survive because they are kind of like a valuable partner. And so then what Motherson will do is they'll then go in and kind of buy out this distressed, like it's comp- auto parts company and make it their own. And what they do is when they buy it, they don't kind of strip out and go for cost efficiencies. They promote the management um, and the leadership team from internal and they try to help maintain culture in all these separate entities they buy. And so it reminded me a little about Constellation, which got me really excited. So I think he apparently Monish will talk deeply about the company in another lecture uh, he does at Peking University. So I haven't watched that one yet, but that's on the to-do list. And then he kind of goes on this rant about CEOs and the value of looking at the track record of CEOs. And so he talks about uh, Fiat and Sergio Marcioni. And that's a story I'm not too familiar with, but I've been a fan of John Elkin at XOR. And I know just briefly how Sergio is supposed to be this super amazing uh, leader who kind of turned Fiat Chrysler around from kind of a poorly run auto manufacturer to one that is extremely disciplined and Sergio kind of cut all costs and he's this real down-to-earth CEO who was extremely shareholder friendly and so Unis talks a little about about that as this kind of guy who had already had like a like a eight-year track record with all these case studies on how he ran companies and how even the merger of Fiat Chrysler and Group Group PSG, which owns Peugeot and uh, Citroen, the other kind of large auto manufacturer in Europe, kind of makes sense because the guy who leads PSG is named Carlos Tavares, and apparently he is also this super down to earth, very cost conscious, very, uh, you know, kind of. I don't want to constantly use the word frugal, but, you know, he's a very cost-conscious guy, and he's not the kind of CEO who flaunts wealth. Like, apparently, Carlos, despite being the chairman and CEO of one of the largest auto com- auto companies in the world, apparently, he gets all his suits off the rack. He always travels coach. He He's the kind of guy, as Monish puts it, he can squeeze blood out of a rock, and he's been very material in making PSG into, into a much more efficient and profitable auto company, and apparently, he was able to create this kind of change before when he was at GE in the European division. And so it's to kind of talk about the track record, like looking for the track record in CEOs and kind of digging deeper into what they've actually done. Um, Because a lot of times the management can can make a whole lot of difference to a company as well, which for me kind of is accentuated in my investment thesis where I personally believe that management and the leaders who create the culture of the company can actually have a much bigger impact than the actual business model itself, especially when the business model is emerging and not 
so entrenched and established where it's just it just cannot be touched because of some regulatory hurdle. I think most businesses are fluid and they need to evolve. And this was kind of a talk that got me really excited where Monish was kind of shedding a little light on the management style, which he doesn't really do too often, I'd say. Um, something else from his talk was, let's see. Oh, yeah, well, I think I'll, talk, I'll cover this a little deeper in the next lecture I cover. But, you know, when you're a value investor, or I think... The term value investor is so con- convoluted in, in ways. When you're when you're an investor, you have to look at price, and so valuation matters. And it's just the idea that Moonies uses owner's earnings, which can be computed in various different ways, but it's essentially cash flow after capex. So you know the cash flow that's going to go to the owners after you've paid for all the capital expenditures required to operate the business and then whatever you have left over is going to be the reinvested into the company dividends repurchases etc or m a like all that so that's how he uses to i think calculate the earnings of a company um i think he brought up a really good point when he was talking about people who send them stock reports about companies and they'll tell them like oh yeah this is a 13 dollars stock that can be 17 dollars and it reminded me of all the dumbass stock pitches i had to do back in university where you say you're bullish in a stock and it's going to have like a, there's like a 20% upside. And now when I think about it, it makes me go, yeah, like what was the point of a DCF just to talk about some 20% improvement in valuation. And Monish talks about how, yeah, like if, if a company on, on the bullish scenario can't give you a five X, 10 X return, why are you even looking at it? What's the point? And I think that's an awesome question to just ask yourself where, yeah, like if you're not, if you know, if you're looking at a company and you don't think it can become five times the size it is now in you know something like five years, maybe this is not the right opportunity. There's probably better fish to fry out there. And I think that kind of stretches your imagination and thinking about how the business could grow and evolve. And that's what you're really looking for when you're looking for a business that can compound over time and is part of a quote-unquote growing pie. Move on to the next lecture. This is his lecture at Trinity College in Dublin, February 21, 2019. Um, I think a big story here. Uh, there's a lot of small ones, but hmm, I'd say two big ones that came up out of my notes. One's on the idea of circle of competence. He talks about it in the other lectures as well, but generally about how it's, it's kind of a weird, I think, balance that you have to... Or, there's a tough balance you have to strike where I I personally love being a generalist and everything and I want to learn as much as you can and you know Charlie Munger constantly talks about how you want to learn all the mental models out there so that you can you know use them all and be able to tackle problems from various ways and use different mental models in different scenarios like you know understanding insurance can help you understand could actually come valuable in understanding a software company and that can also be really valuable in understanding a retail company for example these these knowledges can constantly build on top of each other as like a stack kind of like a tech stack if you will but um, Munich also makes the argument that you also want to make sure that you can do enough work to identify what your circle of competence actually is and to the importance of actually playing within it kind of talking about how you you can ignore 80% of the market 
and you'll still be fine and you'll still make plenty of money because you don't really need that many good ideas which is which is definitely true and the example he uses is uh on buffett where a lot of buffett's successes have historically come from the levered institutions i.e financials and he's also done pretty well in media companies but he's not had a great success in retail and so in one way yeah it could be that uh, Buffett is you know awesome at understanding financials and leverage and he is an extremely gifted mathematic has a gifted mathematical mind and so I think that could definitely aid him in that uh, he's also been very deep into insurance so that also probably continues to compound his knowledge in that space and it I think it corresponds well with what John Templeton constantly talks about or talked about where you know most the best analysts will be wrong a third at a time and there's other people i think you might have been peter peter lynch who said expect to be only right six out of ten times at best and it's that continuous theme of yeah you'll be wrong and your batting average will only be you know at best on like 60 66 percent but i think the circle of competence actually works to tie in the second part of the relationship where there's a slugging percentage like if your batting average is 60 66 percent there's a slugging percentage where when you're right you want to be right in a big way. And when you're wrong, you want to be wrong in a really small way. And that's what Buffett's done a really great job of. And it kind of works well to trans- lead into what uh, George Soros has said as well. Because he always said, I'm paraphrasing him again here. It, and I think he said something along the lines of, it's not, it's not a matter of whether you're wrong or right. It's how much you win when you're right and how much you lose when you're wrong and that's where capital allocation comes in a big way and generally you can allocate more capital when you tend to invest in an area where you have a higher degree of circle of competence so i found that to be a very uh key learning i think another one that Puray talked about was he kind of shared his uh i guess background like he talked he talks about how his father was an entrepreneur that had a lot of businesses that didn't go so well that went bankrupt and how his life growing up you know there was kind of constant pressures of yeah sometimes his family didn't know when the next meal would come when his father's business failed and his father father would use a lot of leverage in his businesses and stuff and so that kind of painted a little picture of uh, you know monisha as an investor and what might influence his current style and so that for me was just a cool interesting story and something though to talk about was Apparently, when Monish's, Monish's uh, father's business didn't go too well, apparently he would hire some kind of as, like an astrologist, some kind of like fortune teller who would tell him, oh, yeah, your next business will be this, you know, 10x, 20x more successful. And apparently, <laughs> Monish would go to his engineer dad and say, you're, you're a rational thinker. Why, why do you use this kind of stuff when you know you can't predict the future? And what his dad told him was how when you're in a hole, you need a rope to climb out of that hole and for him this was his rope this was the rope to climb out of a hole so you know and i think that actually it kind of talks it it shows you what you have to do to continue to play the game and i think that's the big thing the important part where if you're gonna fail you're gonna get beat down when you play the game whether it's investing or entrepreneurship and you have to do what you can to get yourself out of the hole sometimes it's you know talking to an astrologist and even though you know you can't predict the future 
still having the person give you that push the support and sometimes you could just be talking to your friends i think and like if i think about my parents i remember i had this conversation with my mom um on just the idea of religion and you know i was raised in a catholic house and i'm not religious in any way but my parents still are and you know we kind my grand my mother's side of the family is uh, pretty religious and so i constantly I used to get into a lot of, uh, I'd say, disagreements, not so much arguments, but discussions on the t- topic of religion. Um, and I think one time she talked about how, yeah, sometimes you just need a rope to give you hope about things. And some people will use religion. And for her, she'd said those are sometimes when she needed it. And I think that's where this comes in, where it's important to figure out how you can climb out of the hole. And I think I've experienced that a lot of times building OMD ventures as well. I haven't felt it too much in investing. Um, I think it's, you know, I'm still too new to the game um, to feel that as much. So I think that's something I have to continuously play at over time, but definitely on the whole entrepreneurial side, on my career, I've felt it. And so, yeah, I think that's a pretty awesome story to hear to just kind of get a perspective on that. And I think a lot of the learnings I have here kind of like, I don't know, it's obvious to me because I've <laughs> listened to so many of Fulbright's interviews in the past, but uh, I think a couple, I'll, I'll share a couple more. One is that obviously price matters, but the fun example is that if you bought Coke at in the year, like the 2000s, Coke was at something like 45 times price earnings and the Coke currently in so in the interview I guess like 2019 time uh, was around 15 times earnings Um, and so that would have generated something like a 2% annual return and so it's kind of like yeah it's a great business but the price you pay matters a lot and that'll I think but that kind of should be overlaid with it depends when you're buying into the business at because Coke in the 2000s, it was not the same Coke it was back in 1980s, 1970s. Um, so I think that's something to definitely keep aware, like keep in mind of and be aware of as well because businesses evolve, they, they can erode as well. And so the price matters. But I think someone who bought Coke at 45 times in 2000 and kept it all the way um, till now may have ignored the actual business itself as well because... I don't see it as that much of a promising business, but I haven't really looked into Coke before, but I I stopped drinking pop in, like in the mid-late 2000s. So I've kind of been detached from the whole pop beverage world. Um, I just don't see the need for it. Like I think like I only drink water and coffee, so I can I personally feel like this company won't do well in the future, but... That's just me. But yeah, that I think the overall lesson of, yeah, price matters uh, is definitely a key thing to consider. Um, I think another one is just the idea of managing other people's money. Like I've never, I cons- I don't want to manage other people's money. I just see it being more of a hassle. And I think being part of working at a fund kind of made me realize, yeah, like I just never want to have to manage someone else's money to live. And I can understand that capital is an amazing form of leverage, but I just... Yeah, I just don't want to manage other people's money as a career. But what 
uh, Munish talks about made a lot of sense where he talks about how if you're going to manage uh, other people's money, like if Monish were to look at an ma- investment manager or when Charlie Munger was looking for an investment manager, the most important thing is to find an investment manager who's already wealthy. Like you don't want to invest in someone who needs your money to become rich. It's beca- And so it's kind of that experience like you want someone with a track record who's actually done this craft and become rich as a result of it and also you don't want someone who is kind of desperately in need of that money to be able to do the job like you want someone who's actually doing it because they actually love it and they don't need money anymore as a result um and this was the case for monish when he was investing he turned his one million dollars from selling a portion of his business to 11 million before he even started his investment fund and same for Lee Lu, who Charlie Munger uh, gave money to, and he's the only fund manager that Charlie Munger's ever given money to. And yeah, like Lee Lu's had an amazing track record where he turned twenty grand uh, when he was in university to two hundred and fifty k in four years, um, just while he was in school. And then he continued to compounded money for like twenty thirty percent a year until Charlie Munger finally said, "All right, cool, you're <laughs> you're a successful, you know, millionaire. Here's here's my money." Um, but I thought that was a uh, very key lesson you want to be deserving of outside capital you have to show um considerable track record and yeah like if you like if you don't know whether you're good or not at at investing when you're like 40 or something you probably are not so that's something to keep in mind um and then finally i'll kind of keep this on brief uh there are very similar learnings in each of the uh I'd say lectures. So even if you watch one, you'll kind of get the gist of it. But the final one, this was at a Q&A at the London School, London Business School. Uh, I think this was also something in 2019, 2018. And I think the key learning here was kind of in the beginning where he talks, goes through his 10 commandments of investing. The first one is no management fees. It's a t- classic uh, Buffett partnership model that Monish runs as well, where you charge a 0% management fee um, compared to what, the, what is the industry standard, which is 2 and 20. The industry, like most hedge funds, charge a 2% margin fee on the assets where they just skim off 2% from the top and then they take a 20% performance fee. So any addition, any money you generate in the year, they'll take a 20% cut of it. And mutual funds just do a flat you know, 2%, 1% fee, which is similar to what ETFs do, although most ETFs now are kind of more 0.06% fees. But it's a similar model of mutual funds where they just take a cut off of the assets under management. But Buffett partnership model is you just take no management fee because why should you get paid for just having someone's money under your management? And you should only make money if you actually outperform the market. So Buffett always had a 6% hurdle where you give 6% to the client. um, And then any additional money you make after the 6% return Buffett would take a quarter of it. So 25% was his performance fee. And that's the model that Monish uses as well. And it's kind of, I, I, if I were to manage outside capital, I would use that way too. It's just, I think that's the best way to align incentives. And this is kind of a no-brainer way. Um, but yeah, so that's commandment number one, no management fees. Commandment number two, no investing teams. Monish says value investing is not a team sport. <laughs> it's an individual um, journey. And I am in total agreement with that. I never... I think that's also because I, I'm i a person that likes in individual sports. I've never been a team sport kind of person. And yeah, that kind of sits really well with me. If I were to run a fund, I would never have 
um, I would never hire people either. And I gravitate towards people who have that sentiment as well. Uh, number three, you'll be wrong one third of the time at best. Accept this and focus on your slugging percentage. Yeah, just accept that you'll be wrong a lot. <laughs> and capital allocation and margin of safety is going to save you. Uh, number four, PE of one companies. So long story short, price matters. And it's hard to find PE of one nowadays, but you can find it. Uh, it might not be in the US. And I think it's also kind of the general concept of just price matters. So be aware of valuation and you know don't give into frothy valuations. Uh, commandment number five, don't use Excel. Precision isn't necessary. Um, Munich talks about how his Fiat Chrysler investment, he made it without using a DCF. And his Fiat investment did exceptional. I think when he... So I I knew about this investment and I'm so mad <laughs> that I didn't pull the trigger. Like I knew that Ferrari was a freebie and I and I just... But I just couldn't get myself... Head, I couldn't get my mind around um, automakers at the time. This is when I was... I think just graduating university where I was just kind of starting off my career in consulting. Yeah, it's just, I'm pretty upset I missed that. But like when Monish invested, um, like I got the idea because I saw Monish's 13F and I saw that his he had a huge investment in Fiat. And I was like, hmm, I wonder why he did that. And yeah, that was my mistake. But yeah, apparently when Monish made his investment in Fiat Chrysler, he didn't use a DCF. It was a very no-brainer investment and it's something that got him you know, 4x on just the Fiat Chrysler stock alone. And then the spin-off that resulted from Fiat, which is Ferrari, it was as easy, like something like an 8x. So yeah, but it's just the idea of you're not trying to be precise. There's no way to ever be precise. And DCFs are kind of kind of a crutch for people in a way because humans are the best at, um, you know, rationalizing. And DCF, I think, is a, is one such tool to help you rationalize your, um, I guess, biases and the decision you really want to make or the truth that you want to happen. But if you say, you kind of, you know, provide yourself with a constraint and say, I will not use a DCF, then you can't make investments unless they're so obvious. Like there's such no-brainers that it goes, oh, wow, this looks super cheap. I guess I'll buy it. And I think that was the kind of argument Monish was making with what fiat was for him and why he doesn't use Excels. And then number six, have a rope for times of despair, kind of like the the story I talked about in the previous uh, sec, previous lecture on you know how Monish's dad has had the astrologist come in. Commandment number seven, focus, which pro, which kind of relates to the circle of competence. Um, Testament eight. No shorting, yeah, no, that's that's kind of obvious. Um, I think that's real tricky business. I think shorting is a completely different ball game, and I personally don't like it. Um, commandment number nine: no leverage, yeah, just not going on margin, etc. I know Buffett uses margin, but he's also, I think he's also said that um, smart people don't have a need for margin, and people who use margin are not smart enough. <laughs> I think it's something. It's like a, I'm paraphrasing his quote, but yeah, just staying away from leverage, even levered companies, I think is awesome. Like even to, I'm wholly on board with Taleb's view of debt equals bad. <laughs> uh, Testament 10, copy from the best, i.e. shameless cloning. Like, yeah, like study what other people do. Study the best and clone them, like copy their styles. Like 
my style is a continuous evolution of who the people I like and and I've gravi- I've gravitated more to Charlie Munger um, than Warren Buffett. I've gravitated more to Lee Lu and Monish Pabra and this kind of group of I'd say investors that I am more uh, excited by or Rob Vanell and Josh Tarasov and um, Stephen Green- Greenwood. Like these are kind of investors that I'm gravitating towards more more so. Or like Michael Shearn, Ian Castle, like these kinds of guys who have more management focuses and look at culture of companies and so. Yeah, I'm just continues trying to copy from the best and slowly develop my own style in the process as well. But yeah, so that's been the learnings for the day. Uh, a lot of talk from learning from um, investors that I consider to be amazing, as well as learning from kind of the life of the founder and chairman of Morningstar. And yeah, there you have it. I hope this was fun, informative, and I hope to have you here. Have you back for tomorrow. Take care.